0: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3 and more with stories that matter to the
1: crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The CoinDesk Podcast Network. I'm Zach Seward and we are here with you on CoinDesk TV on the show, The Hash. I'm Zach, we have Will, we have Jen, we have Wendy, We are going to get you up to speed on all the latest happenings in the world of crypto and beyond. And starting us off today is Wendy. Take it away.
0: We have a very, very interesting story. And the reason why we are talking about Mr. Elon Musk acquiring Twitter is because I personally believe that Elon Musk, if he acquires Twitter, will really help to bring it front and center for Web3. And we'll start to see more adoption happen with crypto. So some details about this story. Elon Musk says Twitter deal cannot move forward until he has clarity on fake account numbers. So the Twitter deal is currently on hold because he is saying that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users, which he tweeted on Friday. And according to this also, Twitter shares are down more than 20% in pre-market trading before stock rebounded to somewhat. Two hours after his first tweet, Musk posted that he still committed to the acquisition. And also, too, if he actually does not acquire Twitter and keeps going back and forth with all this insanity, he will actually have to pay $1 billion fee. And as you guys can see, there's a lot of tweets about Musk and his opinion and him kind of disrespecting the SEC and going back and forth with all these prominent figures online. Who wants to comment on this?
2: Zach looks really ready to comment. He just had a fair... Zach on the comments. I stifled stifled
1: a (laughs) sneeze. And I thought I did that pretty smoothly. But thanks, Will, for calling it to the (laughs) attention of our viewers and listeners. God, I will take it on the topic, though. I think Elon Musk is certainly demonstrating his mercurial nature here. One minute he's in, one minute he's out. Is it cold feet? Is it gamesmanship? Is there some 3D chess here that we're unaware of being played? hard to say. I think it's just going to come down to like his mood on that given day. Whether or not this deal gets done comes down to his view on that given day. It may not, Matt, like the bot thing sort of seems like a red herring. I mean, bots on Twitter are annoying and we could hope that they would be eradicated to some extent. He's also laid out some plans to sort of uh, do a proof of humanity bot genocide for, for folks uh, out on Twitter. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to be the real deal breaker here, but again, it just seems sort of like, whatever the mood is that day, that's going to dictate whether Elon gets this done. But it's certainly going to be interesting until then. And we've seen that. We've seen twists and turns in this whole saga. And now here we are talking about it again, the latest chapter in Elon trying to take over Twitter. I'm throwing it straight to Jen, though, for her thoughts.
3: I love that. Eradicate the bots. I can just see that clickbait headline going so many places. I don't know what to think about Elon. Like the fact that he is So stuck on this bot narrative is really interesting to me. It doesn't really seem in line with the narrative he had before. You know, he really wants to open up social media. He wants to be a a platform where freedom of speech is actually honored and to focus on bots feels counterintuitive. I thought it was funny though. If there was a series of tweets by Twitter CEO that addresses this. So he was saying, There is an equation that outside people can understand, you know, you need public and private information to really be able to, to calculate the percentage of bots on the platform. And it is closer to five and not closer to 20%, which some outside analytics firms have estimated and Elon has estimated too. Elon responded to this Twitter thread with a poop emoji, which I just thought was amazing. You know, he is the king of trolling, the king of memes. I have no idea what's going on, if he's going to acquire Twitter or not. But it seems really silly to to focus on the bot narrative. But Will, what do you think?
2: Yeah, there is a Twitter account dedicated to tracking all things Sam Fried called Autism Capital, and uh, it's a pretty great Twitter account. And in this case, it took up the helm of Elon Musk and seeing what he's up to. And he noted that maybe Elon is taking his eye off the ball a little bit. Like he's getting way too into shit posting, wink wink, non dod to what you were just talking about there, Jim. <laughs> Elon has been talking about all these random things. He's been going after the liberal party within Twitter itself, been knocking on their door, making fun of them. He's basically just been taking shots at anyone and everyone, including like the, the interim CEO over the company he's about to buy. Like he's just actively making fun of the guy on twitter instead of like trying to close this deal so it does seem like at this point like i might retract from my statement last week saying that he's going to take over twitter i feel like he might not now i feel like this might just be like another game he's playing at first i thought he was just trying to reprice the deal for how much he's buying it but at this point he just seems like he doesn't care he just he's just bored uh, jen i'll get back to you
3: I just wonder also if he's having trouble securing funding. You know, we heard that he was going to take out a loan against his Tesla stock, and then he went back on that. He's not going to do that. He might be over leveraged because of other financial commitments. And so I just wonder if he's having a hard time securing funding for this deal, and he may just take the $1 billion penalty and move on. But Wendy, I'll kick it back up to you.
0: Before we give it over to Zach, I just want to say, I think that it is important to note that he is concerned about the amount of bots that are being utilized on the platform. Number one, spam. Number two, it could be a potential legal problem because people do actually get scammed on Twitter by clicking all these links, these WhatsApps, all that type of stuff, the phishing attempts. And I do think it's important if he is going to purchase a platform that the numbers are correct because why would you purchase a bakery that is stating they're making 300 pizzas a day when in fact they're only making 20 pizzas a day? That's just my thoughts on that
1: if anyone knows bots on twitter personally it's elon musk if you ever tweet something about like elon (laughs) musk there is a flood of bot activity under many of these posts no they are and there are dangerous right there are people who fall for them send money to addresses and stuff like that he may have a a front row seat on this whole dynamic all right we're gonna change gears we're gonna go to wall street will's favorite place we're gonna talk about a wall street analyst this time at city Last week's Terra stablecoin collapse is unlikely to cause any problems in the wider financial system. Okay, this one might be a bit more sensible than algorithmic stablecoins leading to the failure of the NFT market, but still, Will, it's a Wall Street analyst saying some stuff. So
2: I'm going to throw it to you for your initial take on this report out of City today. I think this is pretty good. Key discrepancy here, key change. This is a Wall Street report, not from a banking analyst necessarily, right? I guess it is from a bank. But the reports I always knock on are like, they're from like first-year analysts that are always talking about this stuff. And so I feel like it's a little bit different, but maybe not. I might disagree with this though, because there's different types of contagion within the markets, right? You can have regulatory contagion. Regulators come in because there's been some failure in the market. And they cause significant pain for people who've been in the market before. There's going to be regulation coming out of what happened with Terra. It's going to take a while to get there. But I would classify that as some sort of financial contagion, right? Because there's going to be a change in market structures based on what happened with Terra. Forty billion dollars is also not something to like nod or wink at and just like forget about. It's a huge sum of money. It makes uh what Bernie Madoff did like. it's about actually the same size. It was like $50 billion Bernie Madoff pulled off, something like that. So it's like very similar in size of scope and like cause. Obviously, like financial collapses are a whole other ballpark. Like we're talking about like a housing market falling apart. That's trillions of dollars. But I don't think $40 billion is anything to, to look away from. One thing that I would agree with him, though, is like in terms of what's going to happen for Wall Street, Terra seems to be pretty much the side because Terra was a global issue. I probably won't call it a scam or anything like that on the show, but like it obviously had its fall points and had some Ponzi-like structures to it, but it was a global issue. It wasn't so like tied up in Wall Street that Wall Street would probably have some issues from it. Wendy, I'll toss it up to you for your take.
0: I honestly think that it is going to impact the wider financial system, but it's not going to impact it monetarily because what's happening is we're seeing the public servants, that's how I'll phrase them on this show, but we're seeing the public servants come in and say, we need regulations. Stable coins are dangerous. they are poker chips, blah, 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 blah. And that could potentially cause some issues when we integrate our CBDC. It could cause some issues in TradFi and that type of system. So it, I do think we will see some sort of hit that does occur. There's going to be a lot of changes that are going to occur on a global level. But as far as monetarily hit, I don't think that's going to happen to TradFi. But it is, again, like you said, well, it is something important to note because of the amount of money that it was. I don't necessarily think it was like a BitConnect thing that happened. I think there's a lot of things behind the scenes that happen. but we will see a lot stricter regulation and people are going to be a lot more conservative what they do decide to do in regards to crypto, especially the Wall Street folks. Will, I wanted to
3: get your opinion on this snippet of the article. It says, the bank sees production costs as a floor because below these levels, it's less economical for mining, which may lead to a decline in hash rates and an adjustment an algorithm difficulty to keep the Bitcoin mining reward rate constant. What does that mean in regular people speak?
2: Okay, let me, let me par this a little bit more. So if they're talking about Bitcoin and how are they getting from Bitcoin to Terra? That's yeah, really this was my
3: confusion. I'm just here for maybe, the people.
2: This is why maybe because of the UST, UST was essentially this supposed to be backed by telling. Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, there was like some sort of integration. Between actually two different areas, so there's like Bitcoin. They're buying Bitcoin in the LFG reserves to, to shore up UST, and then there's this other thing that was sort of under the radar, where there was a Bitcoin mining protocol that was that's actually like a DeFi protocol also that was going to like help supplement funds. But I think that totally went out the window when Terra blew up. Uh, definitely went out the window. So I can't give you an answer, Jen. I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure, sure why every day. mining was tied up in this. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll investigate it, write a thought piece (laughs) about it, publish it on Twitter, make a career out of it. That's what I could do. Good stuff. All right, well, we'll leave it there for this topic. Let's talk about Bitcoin mining. Cambridge has put out new numbers about the Bitcoin mining ecosystem and where Bitcoin's hash rate lives. The last time we saw a study like this, it said 0% of Bitcoin's hash rate resides in China. Well, that was a lie. It's about 20% in China. It wasn't a lie, but there's new data out there so we can see a difference and change over the last few months. 20% of Bitcoin's hash rate resides in China. Obviously, last year, June 2021, we talked a lot about Bitcoin mining being banned in China. But it seems like a lot of those miners survived. A lot of people in the industry did think so as well. And it looks like the numbers are showing that after a while. I think that 0% figure we had for the last year just shows that a lot of miners were trying to cover their tracks. They didn't want to be exposed to the Communist Party of China and uh, have their operations shut down. So I think that's why we saw a 0% number. But now it seems like Cambridge has some better data and some better methods for counting how many miners are in China. And that's why we see that. Just as a disclosure, I do work for a Bitcoin mining company as a content director. So. Anything I say about this is probably suspect. Zach, I'll throw it up to you for your take.
1: <laughs> so much China fud out of you, Will. Oh my God. Um, yeah, no, I just want to step back a little bit. So yeah, the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, they are sort of like, in my opinion, at least, they're the, the gold standard of quantifying the scope of power consumed to mine proof of work cryptocurrencies, chief among them being Bitcoin. And so when these reports come out with fresh data, people who you know watch the industry closely get really excited and look at where Hash rate is distributed around the globe. We've seen again these narratives of the China ban distributing hash rates certainly to Kazakhstan, who was a big beneficiary. The US remains a big beneficiary and is growing according to these latest figures, at least. So it is interesting to see quantified the distribution of global mining power. And you know, I think when we take this in the context of sort of energy mix and carbon footprint, these become the data points that get woven into many various arguments about the deleterious impact of the bitcoin ecosystem and the positive impact that this energy is worth expending to have sort of a sovereign currency that can be accessed in times of trouble these are the data points i think that we'll see a lot of going forward when it comes to you know whatever side of the argument that you're on this seems to be the best data set for understanding again that footprint of the mining operations around the world but wendy i'll toss it to you for your thoughts
0: this is more of a question or observation we have heard so much fud come out of china in regards to bitcoin In regards to cryptocurrency but it's very interesting because china was the first place to actually almost successfully roll out a digital cbdc so to me i'm I'm taking a step back i'm trying to follow the money i'm trying to rationalize all this and i really feel like china is playing like a million d chess with us because they ban bitcoin they unban it and then they ban mining they unban it so how are these companies these mining companies how are they able to sustain in such a harsh place that's supposed to be so against bitcoin mining so that's just a thought that i have The
2: most boring sector is always on everyone's headlines these days. So just just keep that in mind. Boring is good. I think it's because a lot of people think of China as like this monolith, right? Like it's this big country, it's communist. We don't know much about it, but that's not really the case, right? China has lots of different parts to it. There's lots of different provinces within those provinces. There's little states, jurisdictions, whatnot. And each little bit has like their own way of looking at this system. It's very much like Nazi Germany or, Soviet Russia, where you would have like local officials and you could bribe them. This is my history corner, by the way. So you'll get used to it, Wendy. Like there's parts of of those countries (laughs) that would operate using like the very strict authoritarian rules that existed. And then there's other parts that were more lax because they were farther away. They just didn't care about the rules as much. You could bribe people. And that's very much so the case within China today, where in Beijing, you might get these edicts out about like, hey, we're going to ban Bitcoin mining. You cannot do this. Uh, under penalty of prison time. And then you get a little bit farther west, and they're like, hey, you slip me 20 bucks. I'll let you keep mining. I'm not going to care that much. And I think that's why you saw a lot of Bitcoin mining activity just unplug for a little bit, and then they just plug back in when they could, and then they just pay a little bit out to bribes. Uh, oftentimes, they're also just off the grid, right? Like There's a lot of stranded energy in China. Western China has huge reserves of coal, natural gas, and uh, water power. And... People just plug in miners. They find little energy sources. They plug in their little mining operation. Before you know it, you get 20% of the Bitcoin network. So I think that's the answer. Like People look at China and be like, this is a monolith. I don't understand it. But it really is a quite diverse country uh, with lots of different parts, lots of different ethnic groups, lots of different jurisdictions within it.
3: Got to love history corner, Will.
2: (laughs) They made a graphic for me, but they never showed it. So uh, I don't know if they got scared of doing it, but... See, I'll do it one day.
3: I remember when we first spoke about the mining ban, we kind of asked the question, like, how is this going to be managed? And we speculated that really harsh punishments would be put in place to disincentivize people from mining in China. And so when I read this story, it was almost like heartwarming to see that mining is still happening and it's gone underground, especially in China, where we look at how the government rules in China and there's you know, huge issues with freedom of speech. And that's creeping into the financial system with CBDCs. And when we look at, you know, transparency and privacy with the CBDCs that are rolling out in China. And so it was like a heartwarming story for me to see that Bitcoin mining is still alive and well. That's my optimism for the day.
2: It is. The human side of this is really cool, right? Like there's people who lost their livelihoods and had to go underground and like it's popping back up. So like, I think there's definitely a human angle and I'd love to see some reporting, maybe from CoinDesk, about some of these miners Zach. who went underground for for six months and came back up. I mean Zach, that's scary. That,
1: that's sensitive. that's sensitive stuff. We could maybe do something. All right, Will. All right, you got me. I can't say no to you. <laughs> I'll help you out. Wendy. Wendy, would do you just,
0: re- <laughs> just really quick, I just want to remind everybody. I feel like mining is one of the most underappreciated aspects of crypto. And the reason why. It is part of Bitcoin's fundamental analysis, and a lot of traders. We, sometimes we try to focus on, you know, different support and resistance areas, but it also kind of correlates with miners' profitability. So I just want to put that little piece of information out there. If you're actively trading or investing, please do not discount Bitcoin mining. It is immensely, immensely important as part of fundamental analysis.
2: Wow, you didn't even hear that from the mining guy in the show. So it's pretty lit. Look
3: at that. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this thing up with the last story. So A16Z has released their inaugural state of crypto report, which includes cyclical information on the current market downturn and says that the Ethereum blockchain remains the most dominant one. So the report built on a blog post that was released last year called the Crypto Price Innovation Cycle. Now, the cycle works like this. They say strong digital asset prices draw talent to the space developers innovate during the bear market. And once winter is over, the projects that the startups have been building drive optimism. Another report. I'm not going to toss it down to Will. I'm going to toss it to you, Zach. What what did you think of A16Z's inaugural State of Crypto Report? We've been talking about this coming up for a while. Here it is. Were there any surprises in there for you?
1: Not a ton kind of surprises, but lots of interesting little nuggets, right? I mean, they have mm-hmm. a bajillion dollars. I'm not even joking when I say a bajillion. They have <laughs> multiple billion dollar crypto funds. It's become a very big part of their business. So for them to be out here during these choppy seas, I think, you know, last week we saw a lot of like teams, you know, issuing blog posts to their teams saying, you know, soldier on. We're going to get through this. It's middle season. <laughs> and I think we're seeing that in a big way from A16Z, which remains one of the biggest investors in the space. So, you know, the overwhelming conclusion here is, we're still early, right? They kind of looked at internet adoption trends and sort of try to map those trends on the current trajectory of where we are. And they say that, hey, as it relates to what the internet was, crypto is in 1995 still. And we still have time to make this thing work at a mass scale. I think they offered a little nugget by 2031, they project that the crypto ecosystem would reach 1 billion users. And that's a far away off from the 7 million to 50 million that they estimate using Ethereum right now. So it was interesting, I think those little data points, but the overall sentiment here, not surprising at all. This is an investment firm with big bags, investments across Mm -hmm. the ecosystem. And for them to pipe up with some reportage on how it shouldn't all be doom and gloom in a moment of market doom and gloom, feels very par for the course for someone who's uh, deeply invested in this thing. But I'll
2: toss this to Will. Yeah, it definitely makes sense, right? Like they have huge bags in this ecosystem and so they're going to try to prop up those bags. Uh, interesting let's go to a media corner for a second i think this is one of Zach's and mine's favorite things to talk about It's just like media plays within crypto and writ large and it's really interesting a16z has built its own little media corner they hired a former reporter at fortune to run as editor-in-chief and now they're putting out the state of crypto it's wild to see that and that's kind of the time to do it and to run out their your media empire in a sense is actually when things are going bad because you want to bring attention to what people are building and and especially if you have deep pockets and you could pay for people to be able to be writing about your projects, I think it gives some like comfort to the the founders who are working on all these things. Oftentimes during the the bull market, you think like that might be the best time to have like a, a media project running, but uh, that's not always the case because things just get shouted out by all the the memes and the price charts. Uh, so that's one takeaway for me. Overall, though, like the numbers you just wrote out there, Zach, pretty aggressive, like 7 to 50 million people right now using Ethereum, that seems like a lot. Maybe that's the case and I don't know if I get to like argue one way or the other, that seems kind of high to me, but 1 billion by 2031, that is definitely very, very aggressive. I'd be interested to get Wendy's or Jen's opinion on that number, Wendy.
0: First off, I always like to follow the money. So when you're talking about somebody with a lot, a lot of money, you want to know what they're invested in. Why are they invested in it and why are they talking about it? I also think that every single large investor, I think having a media corner is a very, very smart idea because essentially if you're going to be investing in different projects, why not highlight them? Why not educate the people that are interested in what you are investing in? I think that other TradFi people do that. So why not do it in crypto? I mean, obviously it could be potentially biased because of someone who is invested in it, but at the same time, it's a great way to kind of educate everybody as to what you're investing in
3: and why. There's another little nugget I want to talk about so the report compared payouts of Ethereum-based NFT creators with Web2 creators. So the report says primary sales plus royalties totaled $3.9 billion, while on the other hand, massive Web2 company Meta reserved about a billion dollars for creators throughout 2022. If we think about the number of Ethereum-based NFT creators and compare those to creators on Instagram and Facebook, those numbers are wild to me and just really exciting for people who have built a business on being influencers and in web two. If they can translate that into web three and be able to move along with innovation, I think there's a really fruitful future for people who create, which I think is awesome.
0: I know a lot of these Instagram creators with large, large followings, they are merging over to NFTs. And I know this is because they're reaching out to me on Instagram and saying, hey Wendy, can you help me? Can you help me with this, this, whatever? Do you want to consult? And I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm seeing this already happening with the Web2 creators.
1: I wanted to throw one last thing out there on the terminology front. I thought there was one interesting little quote in here. We think of Web3 as the term for the movement, whereas crypto is the underlying tech that makes it possible. That's one of the people in the report saying as much. And I think that's actually kind of an interesting framework because I think we've seen sort of the confluence of Web3 as a term and crypto as a term. What do you guys think? Do you think Web3 is the movement and crypto is the tech? Or is blockchain the tech? Is crypto just a, the same word as Web3? Yeah. On the nomenclature side, Will, what's the word? What do you think? I'm more of an open finance
2: guy. So we should just throw back to the old terms. Oh, get wow, back to the basics. Old, way, way back. <laughs> well, way, way back.
0: <laughs> and Will still uses a fax machine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. No, I mean, the nomenclature aside, like Web3 is like Mimi, So that's why I took off, obviously. And I think it's very... Encompassing, but crypto is that term's not really going away. Maybe Web3 will die off as a term though, because of all the stuff that's happened with like a bunch of scams. I'm interested to see if that plays out. Like the blockchain versus Bitcoin thing died off. And I think the blockchain part died off because of a lot of the ICO pump and dumps. Maybe that happens with Web3, but maybe it's sticky because NFTs are fun and people are enjoying all the games and shenanigans online. But who knows, Zach? Exactly.
1: All right. That's it. There's another good thing to enjoy online. And it's that Crypto Boy song, which is really, really good. If you haven't listened to it like 12 <laughs> times already, I don't really know what your problem is because it is so good. So if you want to go check out some fun stuff online, I'm sending you that way. All right. That's it for the show. We'll talk Crypto Boy Anthem another day. I'm Zach Seward. we got Will Foxley. We got Jensen Assey. We got Wendy O. We had a good time today on The Hash. We hope you did too. We'll be back again tomorrow. Check us out on the podcast if you want to Give it an old listen you know re-listen there we're on the uh coindesk podcast network and it's a good place to listen to us on the go all right that's it hope you're having a good one we'll talk to you soon bye you've been listening to the hash on the coindesk podcast network